You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. This episode has been a long time in the making, or certainly a long time coming anyway. Uh, listeners have been asking for an interview with Matt Calvani virtually since I started producing this show four years ago. Matt not only warrants an interview because of his contributions as a surfboard shaper, but he also fills a unique space um, kind of within this show because there's no Matt Calvani label. He actually shapes for Bing Surfboards, a brand that was founded by Bing Copeland long before Matt started shaping. Most people that I have on this show are kind of have bootstrapped their own brand, started it from the beginning. Not the case for Matt Calvani. He's now the owner of the company Bing Surfboards, and he's responsible for a 58-year legacy and for keeping the brand fresh and ushering it through this modern era. And he's definitely navigating both those things. He's keeping some of Bing's original foundational business principles intact, but then he's also building boards for the likes of Dave Rostovich. So our conversation covers business strategy, board design, how to manage work-life balance, and uh, really quite a diverse range of topics. So without further ado, this is David Scales for Shaping Surfing. Everything that we discuss in this episode is available on surfsplendorpodcast.com and on social media at surfsplendor. Chime in on the conversation there. All right, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Matt Calvani of Bing Surfboards. Thanks for listening. Bing and the legacy of Bing existed prior to you being involved. So your time, I would imagine, isn't just devoted to shaping surfboards. You probably have quite a bit of time wrapped up in managing a brand, um, you know, uh, fostering a legacy, all that sort of stuff. I'm curious, how is your time divided? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And uh, initially... Um I kind of got into shaping under other brands and not my own brand because I kind of wanted to make my life simpler. Because mm. back, you know, in 2000 when I took over Bing um, from Mike Eaton, it was like the path of least resistance. It was like I wasn't uh, very good at self-promoting and I could just automatically pick up accounts overseas. I had like – it doors opened instantly when I picked up the brand. So – at that time, it was interesting. It was just the opposite. It wasn't having. To, I didn't have to do anything, except make the boards. Okay. And then now, with uh, once you grow the brand, and then you start realizing, you do need to keep promoting the brand and and fostering its legacy and creating content and things to keep it relevant. Then we ended up having to bring a ton of people in, 
And now we have like 18 employees. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it kind of, it, it turned into the opposite, um, which is, you know, it's all about delegating and, uh, that's not easy to do. You know, when you, when you want things done a certain way, especially it's a little easier because it isn't my name and I'm not saying that I don't, I don't care about it as much as I would care about my own name if my name was on the boards. Um, if anything, I care about it more because it's somebody else's legacy and I don't want to let them down. Right. So I do as much as I possibly can to keep it keep it going. But also, I have to rely on other people. I mean, that's just the fact. And uh, and now it's more work to keep it because you don't want it to be a stodgy brand. Right. You know, like a lot of the old brands have just gotten stodgy, you know, and uh, kind of not, you know, evolved or not been relevant in the public eyes. So, you know... And that's sort of their demise in a sense. It's hard enough to figure out how to adapt in the modern world where things change so rapidly. And you see these brands, Circuit City or whatever, things that you could never have imagined going out of business, going out of business because they can't adapt. Blockbuster, whatever. So, And the surf industry as a whole has always been very slow to change anyway, especially surfboard manufacturing. So you're fighting against those things, but at the same time, there really is value to kind of these legacy brands. There's only a few of them, and so it's it's kind of you're in an interesting position where you can be one of the surviving legacy brands if you adapt in the correct way, you know, and embrace social media and like all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I would say the social media and the. Uh, Facebook and Instagram or and and a good website is just like mandatory now. If you don't yeah. have those things, you uh, you just you know you're pretty much in, irrelevant in a sense. Uh, the one good thing about the legacy brand is that I don't have to go too out on the fringes um, with materials and like new constructions because I'm such a traditional um, construction historically that I don't need to go there. So I and what I find is with those um, experimental constructions and materials is that they end up being like unproven and they end up being problematic, hard to build, um, and then they, and, and eventually some a lot of the time they become irrelevant. So the traditional business I have keeps the medium traditional, so that actually makes things a little simpler because people expect it to be traditional, like poly polyester you know resin and polyurethane blanks so um that's why you know u.s is such a strong ally for us it's just they have an amazing not only do they have an amazing product they have the best service out there right yeah by far so what does your day-to-day look like then how much of it is devoted to actually shaping boards how much is it of it is devoted to business management that sort of stuff you can give me a like snapshot of the day. What do you wake up and do? Uh, well, I luckily I don't have to answer too many emails, um, <laughs> which just bogs me down because I'm not very good at just like just you know giving answers. I, I have to think them out and stuff. So I do like this morning I answered two emails, and uh, they were kind of harder emails to answer. So you know, and I wanted to keep them brief, but it takes up a lot of time, and I need to get into the factory. So I like to get here, you know by like nine um so i do that do my coffee do my morning breakfast uh a light breakfast and then i just come in and then i just got to figure out okay what 
what is the factory doing? Like, where are we at with production? Like, is there boards in the rack to be glass? Because the, the glassers in my factory regulate the volume that I'm going to produce for that week. Okay. So if there's no boards in the rack, no boards are made. So it starts with me just making sure that it, it keep it simple to get those boards in the rack so they can glass. So that that in that part, I, it's got it's pretty well oiled. Like, I, I don't really need... I know what's going to be there on Monday, and I know, like where my time needs to go in the morning so uh, i do have a you know shaping machine i own it and i program in it myself so it's uh it i know this is a touchy subject um let's get into it yeah but i think people need to realize that you know when it when you use a computer the board isn't finished i mean and it's like all we all know back uh you know in the day like computers garbage in garbage out that's what we learned as kids you know so if you don't program it correctly and you don't put the content in there correctly, your result is just, you know, it's not good. It's going to be poor. So it's, it's like shaping. If you don't know how to use your planer, um, it doesn't mean that the planer is going to do the work for you. It's really no different than a computer or a shaping machine or programming. You have to know what you're doing. You have to be, you have to know what you're making, um, it isn't without its problems as well as hand shaping, but in this time and uh, that we live in, you know, where it's like volume, you got to do volume to survive. You have, I mean, that's the fact. And the computer, the shape machine, is given the ability for businesses to stay in the U.S. If the machine didn't exist, then there would be no manufacturing in the U.S. You wouldn't know who made your board. It would be like a, a snowboard. Nobody knows who designed right. it. Nobody even knows who made it. Don't even know. Most people don't even know the country it was made in. So, people got to realize that you know, um, the cost of doing business has gotten so high um, that we have to keep it here. And the way we do it is machines. And if, uh, and in my unique case, I own the machine. I I know how to program it. It's kind of a rare thing um, as a shaper to be able to know how to do all that. And transferring it actually really helped me transferring like the hand shaping artistic side of it into the logical uh numerical side of shaping you know with machines and stuff and uh designing uh it really helped open my mind to new ideas um things that i could weren't possible to keep reproducing are now possible um higher level more detail on the boards um back when i was hand shaping uh only i mean it was pretty much you know very rudimentary shapes with rudimentary bottoms you know not very dynamic um and so now we've able to refine the boards with the computer and that is the key to progression and to keeping up with the times and the competition because you know what the best boards in the world i'm sorry but they're coming off of machines i mean the, all the everybody in the uh on the pro tour they're mostly most of them are riding poly uh, boards, not EPS, um, and most of them are off machines. Very few of them are hand shaped. Sometimes the masters are hand shaped and they're digitized. But um, you know, we really got to look at the facts here. That it's uh, it's a different world than it was, and we all want to idealize it and be like, well, it's just this cool cottage industry like it was in the '60s. And the other fact is, you know, um, is that there's no labor pool for shaping. So if I go and I go turn around and say, I want to shape, sell my machine, but I want to do 30, 40 boards a week. Well, there isn't two or three, four shapers out there to fill those jobs, to be able to do three to four to six boards a day by hand. It's just not there. So 
I'm not, I can't do it all. So, um, my business would instantly just collapse. So, uh, that's pretty much, I mean, I think that's as detailed as I could make it. You know, it's funny that conversation of whether or not hand shaping versus machines. I don't know that it's as controversial as it was five years ago. Like, I don't get a lot of flack about it from these podcasts that I do and people I talk to. Everybody on the consumer side, I think, understands it. And I don't feel like as many people are, like, really anti-machine as they once were because I think they understand the details that you're saying. I think also, for those who don't, or maybe just to elaborate a little further, the way that shapers have explained it to me is like, look, none of us are starting off with a giant piece of foam and whittling it down into the shape. We're all starting off with these, you know, close tolerance blanks that really are all the shape of a surfboard and then just refining it. So what the machine does is it refines it all kind of the, um, the heavy labor refinement. And then it gives me like the last 10% to really focus more attention and detail to a proper refinement which gives the surfer a more refined board anyways. If I was spending all of my time whittling that big block down to very little, I would have very little time in the end to put in the fine details. This way I could focus 90% of my energy on those fine details. And like you said, advance that that end of the progression. I think it also allow it frees up time to spend more time maybe communicating with the client, spend more time running the business. So it helps advance the brand in a lot of ways, not just progression, but in kind of the the systems of the business. So I think a lot of people kind of understand that at this point and are okay with it. And a lot of it starts off with the hand shape anyways. Like even the blank molds come from someone like yourself who designed the mold prior to it becoming an actual mold. And then um, the designs that are coming out of the machine often came from a hand-shaped board anyway so it like it starts with the hand ends up in the machine goes back to the hand you know so i think people are okay with that yeah and and to add to that um you know back in the day when i was doing only production hand shaping um we were pretty much like running the blanks we were just skinning them and you know putting a rail on them just to get the production done and honestly it was uh the the blanks Whoever shaped that blank, that's pretty much the board you were getting. You were getting a Mike Eaton, you were getting a, a Pat Rawson, you were getting a Rusty Priesendorfer board, kind of, because the essence of the blank kind of stayed there. Mm-hmm. And today, with the machines, you can actually put completely 100% of your ideas into the board. You just you sidestep the blank, in a sense. Um, and blanks have gotten more close tolerance, so that problem, as far as... Uh, you know the hand shaping you know, reflecting the blank uh designer is is probably even stronger now because you can take one you can skin top and bottom and then what is it it's not your shape it's somebody else's shape so that's a really good point you made me think of and uh um i say that is uh it's a yeah it's important it just shows the the computer is relevant um i think in my business honestly the uh it's a boutique business and i don't do a lot of numbers so People have a preconceived idea with my product, long boards and things, that they should be hand-shaped. But um, whereas the shortboard thing, I think it's a lot more acceptable. I agree. Um, yeah. So it's still – people are getting it. Um, I know when I say, yeah, I have a machine and uh, I get a look still. 
Um, yeah. Which, you know, and I explained it to him. And honestly, like today, I think what's more important is the, uh, with salesmanship and is the human contact with the person. Like, yeah, you know, just knowing, giving them some security that this is the right board for them from a designer, a shaper, uh, regardless of how it's built. And if you can, you know, make them feel confident in what they're buying, um, it's just like the other things should just fall away. And I think that's the key today is, is the customer service. We're really, um, you know, kind of moving in that direction, realizing what, what really the rubber meets the road is just the, the human contact. The, um, and that's really what the 60s and the 70s, those legacy brand represents is a time when you could go into a little surf shop and like you know say jacobs or something back in the 60s and donald takiyama is behind the the uh counter or lance carson these famous surfers uh shapers and they would just they would help you and they would uh sell you a board and and deal with your ding repair back then these guys were you know nobody's kind of just malibu surfers mostly that were uh trying to just get by just uh make a couple bucks to go surfing right um so so that needs to come back and i think uh um i'm really excited about that because i feel i already see the difference in people when when you do um when you do make a human contact with them and make it they make them feel like uh you're their best friend in a sense not to Mm -hmm. um uh you know but it's important it's important to make them feel confident in what they're buying and uh, that they're, you know, spending a lot of money on something and, you know, they're getting they're getting their money's worth, you know? Totally. Yeah. So this legacy that we're talking about is Bing Surfboards. Um, what's your relationship like with Bing Copeland? And then what – how did you end up getting involved in the business? Well, I was making a lot of boards for a different, lots of different brands and um, – in the nineties, uh, I did a lot of ghost shaping, I guess you could say. And I worked for, um, a pretty fairly big, uh, retail chain, uh, Becker surfboards. I'm sure people are familiar with that. Um, so I did, I cut my teeth sort of on hand shaping with them. And, uh, on the side, I worked for like Hap Jacobs doing low numbers of hand shapes for him. And then I was starting to make Rick surfboards, which is a local LA brand sort of, um, back then in the sixties, they were, quite uh prolific but uh less people know about them but um you know they have a lot of interesting shapes and uh i really learned the craft at that time you know not only did i learn the production side of things through becker and how to run a business and how to sell surfboards and how to make them fast but i also learned from the guys from the 60s that were doing it for the heart and were making boards uh because they thought they were the best boards in the world, no matter how hard they were to shape. So, um, and that's kind of what helped me, uh, transition into today with the harder shapes is just realizing that I need to make the best board possible. Um, as far as Bing Copeland is concerned, uh, he's just an amazing guy. I mean, as far as a partner, um, he's kind of in a sense, a a silent partner, but, um, when I need to like tap into his wisdom, uh, from, you know, all those years of being in business, he just like, he gives me nice, simple answers that I can actually wrap my head around. And, uh, and it's a rare thing. Partnerships are really difficult. Um, and, uh, he kind of, he allows me to do, um, pretty much what I want. And, 
I think that's important because I have the freedom and he trusts me to do the right thing with his name, which is like, you know, something that evolved. And now we're actually part owners in the business. And in 2007, we actually, um, you know, made a partnership. So, uh, and I think that's important too, because I have, I guess you could say, um, skin in the game. Yeah. Uh, so, and he does too, but, uh, it's, it's the best partnership I could, I couldn't even imagine any, any better. That it's 10 years ago, by the way, 10 yes, year anniversary. I know. Dude. I didn't even realize it's been that long. <laughs> How crazy, crazy is that? Um, what have been the biggest changes since you've gotten into that partnership? Didn't you guys relocate or was that prior? Yeah, we moved from, uh, Los Angeles to, uh, this building here, which is the, uh, in Encinitas. Um, was originally the Surfboards Hawaii factory built in 1968 or 9. I never really get it quite the right answer on that one. But, uh, yeah, so we, we took over this. This this uh, this building has, like, so much history. And uh, we basically got handed to us. Um, and they said, well, we just want you to move in. So we did this huge move, you know, where we moved our house our whole life and everything. Um, down here to Encinitas and uh, it was a dream for us to do this because uh, LA was just getting expensive and, and congested and uh, and the surfboard business was is was really struggling there back about this is seven years ago now that I moved here so um, but it was the best thing I ever could I could have ever done and uh, I, I love it here and uh, we picked up some amazing um, workers like the 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 level of craftsmanship in San Diego I think is um, it, it's just one of the highest levels of craftsmanship in the world and that's why I think the San Diego area is the cutting edge for design and quality um, these days because of the sort of like going way back there's a tradition of just very high quality um, surfboards low numbers it wasn't as such a production place there was less population um here back in the 60s and 70s so and that's kind of stayed um in the tradition of the area which is interesting because you wouldn't think an area would would you know kind of uh affect the quality of a surfboard but uh it's um an abstract concept but it's uh it's true so we we stepped up our quality like like exponentially when we moved down here ironically never saw that coming so hmm. Shapers often talk about quality and how important it is. What does quality even mean in a surfboard? How do you define quality? From a shaper's standpoint, it's like it's to me it's simple. It's like uh, it, when I what I have in my mind, it, if I can completely get it into reality, into a blank, uh, into the shape, a hundred percent, then that's a that's perfect for me. I mean, I feel like the idea I have in my mind, I can get in there if I can get that board just what I have in my mind, then I've done my job. And as far as glassing and everything, that's a whole nother deal. And you have to rely on other people because obviously I, I don't do the glassing, but, um, those, those guys have picked up on that kind of philosophy of like, they do the best they possibly can. Uh, and they do it because they love it and they have pride in what they do. And, uh, people see that and they constantly tell us that. And then that strengthens everybody, you know? So everybody's like, wow, we're, we're doing it right, and we're we're thriving in a in an environment right now that's um, not so good. Uh, the board business as yeah, a whole. I mean, it's it's really struggling. It's really sad. I 
I feel for my brothers out there, you know, and that, you know, factories, two factories closed down in the last couple of weeks. So I'm not sure how aware, like the average surfer is about the business of building surfboards, the, the economics of it. What have been the biggest challenges for you as I mean, obviously the brand has changed a lot since maybe the production side of it and the market side of it has changed a bit since Bing was running the business. Um, I'm curious, what have the biggest challenges been for you? I'd, I'd be also curious to hear you elaborate on why you think those businesses have closed. Well, um, let's see. There's a lot of complicated areas in this business that we never even dreamed of going into. Um, um just basically like the retail environment is so um it's it's pretty in a, in a sad state right now the the soft goods business is really down um stores are just struggling to pay their bills and um trying to figure out ways to get sales up and it, things are going backwards i mean we've got amazon we've got you know these big box stores that are selling things cheaper um, and they're just, you know, this, the small retail, I mean, you know, across the board is, is hurting, uh, is hurting really bad. So, um, my point with that is, is, is just kind of, it's gone into the hard goods area where they don't, they don't have the money to buy it. So, um, we support them as much as we can. Um, but ultimately the, the thing we have to do is we have to create more avenues to sell the boards to survive. I mean, it's just survival. So we, we do more online. We do uh, more direct sales online. Um, and obviously, we still try to work with the stores as much as possible, but uh, sometimes it's not possible. So um, we have our own retail store, which is we, from, we, we come from, you know, firsthand background with retail. And it, it doesn't matter what you do. It seems like somebody else has the angle already and you're just you know you're like well i tried that that didn't work and you know ultimately at the end of the day you just your sales are flat and you're like like i don't know where else to turn to i don't know what else to do and again it goes back to that personal connection with people like that's where i think we're seeing the light uh for the first time like you know when somebody comes in the the store the the key is to connect with that person on whatever level that is you know like where did you serve today? You know, hey, we need a bar of wax. It's like, uh, it's just anything to kind of get a dialogue to to get people to feel like it's a retail experience. I guess that's the new term now. And I, you know, and trying to create that retail experience is just, it's a one one person at a time thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, you, you said that you can rely on Bing for guidance, you know, um, to give advice. As much as the world has changed and business has changed, it seems like there's still three fundamentals that have remained unchanged from the beginning of business until, you know, Netflix and Uber and everything else. And that, it, that those things are quality product, customer service, and competitive pricing. And if you have those th- three things intact in a digital sense or in a brick and mortar sense, you're okay. You know, those are the businesses that survive. I think even Uber is providing those things, you know. Yeah, well, there. Yeah, that's where price and uh, the the accessibility. You just you know you got the app. You just boom. You, I'm yeah. right here, and five minutes later, there's somebody picking you up. I mean, it's the it's it has all those elements, and 
Um, you're but, right. That's really well put. But then it's incumbent upon you as the manufacturer to be able to adapt the processes and the overhead and all those things so that you can still meet those goals. Mm. You know, And so you just acknowledging like, hey, we're trying to create this retail experience of like actual touchstone with the customer. That's definitely important. Unfortunately, if every if Amazon's coming in and lowering prices across the market, now you're in a bind where you have to adjust your overhead and your expenses to compete with that. You know, unfortunately. Well, there's over there's ways to override, uh, you know, the whole Amazon thing because they can't create an experience. You know, it doesn't have to be retail. It's like, um, for example, like people come by the factory and. Um, um, let's just let's. I'm gonna give an example of uh, something similar to what I'm about to talk about. Um, so Wolfgang Puck in the early '90s. So what he did is he put a window into the uh, into the kitchen, and it changed the restaurant world worldwide overnight, pretty much because people wanted to see the process. People wanted to have that like connection um, with the dining experience. Mm. Uh, and this is way back then. And, and it just, you know, it blew up and, uh, and then people had to adapt. Um, they, or basically, um, some business I'm sure went out of business of course, restaurants yeah. because they didn't adapt to that new thing. Like, no way am I going to show people that. And, uh, so it's a vulnerable place to put yourself, but, uh, like, for instance, when people come by and they see the factory, this is my point I'm getting to, and they just take a tour, and they just they just glance into the, the laminating room. They've never seen a laminating room. They don't, you know, to see how the colors put on the boards and uh, just walk them through the step. I mean, it's like, it's like a, it could be a two to five minute process, and it's like it blows their mind. It's something that touches them for the rest of their lives because they're like, you know, they just feel like, wow, I just saw something that most people behind the scenes don't see and um, they tell all their friends and that spreads and and that's something that Amazon can't do and even in a sense retail can't do because they can't quite get that impact in like two minutes Mm -hmm. Um, so that's I really think that you know we have to open up a bit uh, which we have something unique I mean what's what's left that's made in America not like basically nothing you know restaurants and maybe bakeries and uh, surfboards is about it. You right. know, everything else is made overseas, and uh, I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast would love to see how their snowboards made or most everything they own. Uh, so you know that's kind of where it's going, and uh, I think there's ways to have hope um, to you know not feel like it's a hopeless situation. Yeah, even with this podcast, it I found that it relies on those three business principles, even though nobody's paying for this podcast. So it's not like I'm competing in that sense. But it exists on the customer relationships that you're talking about, where I feel like they listeners feel like they know me or they have a relationship with me. And then ultimately, they send emails. And we get into these long diatribes back and forth. And then obviously, social media creates an element of feeling like you know the person. I mean, Kelly Slater as an example. I feel like I know Kelly Slater now better through Instagram than I ever did from reading magazines when I was young, you know? So it's, um, that's, there's been ways I think to adapt even without the retail space to kind of have these dialogues and personal relationships with people that you've never met personally. The personal connection is the key. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. And I think like successful brands have done it with just creating little video pieces, vignettes that are essentially commercials, but they go out there and you just feel like you know something about that brand, mm. you know, whoever the brand is. Well, in a world that's getting uh, more impersonal, um, people are just hungry for, for a personal experience. And uh, I think actually that's where our, our business model will actually increase and thrive over time. Um, sort of like, you know, <laughs> it's like it's the, Amazon's gotten to the point where it's so impersonal, where it's like you just it's just one click, you know, yeah. it's like there's not even it's there's no dialogue with a human. Uh, it's it's like you just it's utility. You just go in there yeah. and do it and you're done. Um, but I wanted to touch real quick on did answer your question about these uh, factories that are closing. Oh yeah, yeah, please. Um, but I think you know it's 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 not something that you could simple simply explain. Um, there's no each one of these two instances uh, are unique. You know, they both had their issues, and uh, I think what it boils down to is the complexity of just doing business and 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 like today in this country or in this world and um it, it it's it's hard to explain like I, I i see people wanting to explain it like oh it's china oh it's you know costco oh it's amazon but it's it's like there's a lot of um i'd say there's a lot of it is like a lot of it is the people in the factories like lose hope and when you lose hope um, you don't want to try anymore and then sort of you, you kind of give up or if you show, you know, that you're giving up to your employees, they're just kind of like over it too. It's just infectious. Mm -hmm. uh, it goes both ways. You can in infect people with, with the stoke of making surfboards and surfing um, or you can you can drag them down. And so I think in some instances that happened. I think uh, the cost of doing business has gotten too high and that's another factor. And I think... Uh, and that kind of goes in line with the the overseas production, which is so cheap. And uh, and that's the other thing. Retail now is is become uh, a place just to, you know, brands just come in and they put their stuff in there. And then if it doesn't sell, they just take it out. It's just a place where they showcase their brand and, and sell it. But it's not like the retail store doesn't really buy the product anymore. It's on – the term is it's on wheels. So um, – it's just kind of uh, it's kind of sad where it's all kind of gone, and that's where the hard goods uh, have gone. Is that it's just you know these these boards are on consignment for the most part uh, because they're so cheap to make overseas. So when you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 
2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's LinkedInjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I think that's something a lot of listeners don't know and they're not aware of, and I'm not a. Do <laughs> you got to take that? <laughs> no, <it's okay. laughs> you can if you want. I'll pick it up later. Okay. Um, it's something that a lot of listeners don't know, and I'm not at all opposed to sharing the information because it completely undermines the business, that consignment model that you're talking about. And so simultaneously, the retailer is going through what you explained 10 minutes ago, where their sales are down, they can't afford to pay their bills, and then they have a surfboard supplier come in and go, hey, I know you're having a hard time keeping the shelf stocked with product, Give us more floor space. We'll give you free product, essentially, uh, until it sells, obviously, as a consignment model, and then you could pay the bill after it sells. So for the retailer, it's a no-brainer, And but what it does is undermines the backbone of the business, and it undermines and bastardizes other surfboard brands' sales who are actually working on uh, with American-made product, with reasonable margins to make a living, or like all that stuff. Higher so. costs. Totally. In America. So it's like a race to the bottom. Um, you know, so the American made products that cost like five, ten times more to build. I don't know. I'm just guessing. And uh, they're like trying to compete with these other brands that are coming overseas. And they're just like trying to keep those 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 spots in uh, in the store. Those uh, those um, surfboard spots, not from keeping them from uh, the other brands taking them over from overseas. And then they they basically discount so deep and to where they're losing money just to try to keep that retailer open. Right. Um, and that's it. And it's just like, it's, it's, that's what we're seeing right now. And it's very yeah. sad. And, um, but it's a cycle. It'll cycle out and, um, it's something will good will come of it. I think, you know, I mean, ultimately I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to see any of my uh, peers, um, go out of business at all. Like I, I just, you know, uh, I want everybody to succeed, and I think I want I want to keep. It. That's the thing is I think the important thing to to really say is like we really want to keep board building in America. Yeah. Um, it's just uh, without it, it's like the you're you're not going to get you're just not going to get boards that are progressive, and uh, you're going to get whatever they want to give you, and it's going to be mass marketed, and you're just going to have to eat what you get. Yeah. You know. So I think. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts, actually. Um, I've seen, and maybe my focus is just kind of myopic, and I'm not looking at the broader market, but what I have seen is that the guys making low volume of boards, 300 boards a year or whatever, by hand, let's say, are still making 300 boards a year. 
their business hasn't really suffered. The people who are making larger numbers, like the large factories, are the ones who are having a hard time in the modern market. But the guys, the 300 board a year guys, are dealing with customers on a first-name basis mm-hmm. probably, and those customers haven't really gone away. And I think the market as a whole has more appreciation now for artisanal craftsmanship, whether it comes to surfboards or you know, buying a sofa or a piece of furniture or, or their cheese that they're going to eat that week or like whatever. Like, so I think at the same time, disposable things that you buy at Walmart and Costco, those sales are probably up, but there's also the artisan side of the market that is also up. Um, so I don't know. I think there'll kind of always be a, a space for high end, well-crafted boards. You know, the middle guys are going to have to adapt their model yeah and i feel like that's what we're doing we're adapting to that that new model where we're kind of in between we're not a little brand and we're definitely not a big brand and we're trying to like just find our way in the middle um you know working with the retailers but we're not going to compromise and give away boards because we know that ultimately is the demise of our business if we just start um you know just like not just basically throwing away profit and just going well we just want to keep our business to no. open for no reason that's not that's not you're just trading sense. dollars yeah. yeah so uh you have to look at sustainable business models and uh i honestly yes the 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 we do we've taken a lot of that um direct sale you know person to person has grown immensely for us so but we also are working with the dealers uh, a lo- we've lost a lot of dealers because of this this new kind of um, business thing model that's come up. But ultimately, there's some dealers out there that are still appreciate it and get it, and mm-hmm. um, they're still buying the boards. And um, you know, and overseas is an interesting uh, dynamic. It's sort of it's it's a little um, isolated from all this stuff. They don't have Amazon. They don't have all this like uh, they, they're a little more grassroots in Europe and. Um, other countries so that that's actually helping and uh, if anything what's hurt us over there is more like the currency thing and that's the other thing I wanted to touch on was I would have never dreamt in a million years that like I would be looking at currencies uh, exchange you know like so the Australian dollar or the euro is way down so they can't buy as many boards but Mm -hmm. uh, so we have to figure out a way to get them to you know um, want to keep buying them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, that's an interesting thing. I never thought uh, 17 years ago when I took over Bing it would be an issue. But uh, it's been it, it's been exciting. Um, you know, when let's for instance like uh, the Brexit thing, uh, it was like an 18 percent currency gap. I guess you could call it overnight, and uh, it just killed that business overnight. It, it was like it, it was like nothing ever experienced before. My final question that I have about just the business of the surfboard business, and then we'll move on, is just in this kind of ever-evolving media landscape, I'm interested at um, where you, the best return on investment is for you in terms of marketing dollar. Like, you guys have a team of writers, you know, and I'm sure those people are getting boards, if not for free, at cost. That's something that seems to have not been as equitable now as it was back in the day. Um or are you paying for advertising or does that investment just is it a time investment for you just on social media devoting an hour a day to pumping stuff out on there what where do you see the best return on investment from a marketing standpoint for being 
Honestly, I think that the, you're, you're correct about saying with the team Reiners and um, marketing and everything, it actually, in a sense, it's like you could throw a lot of money at those things and it does give a return. But ultimately, um, what I think is really selling boards for, my, for us is that the, if the boards really, really ride well and they look good. If I can get a board under somebody's feet, I don't care who it is. It doesn't. They don't even have to really know how to surf. They just them walking down the beach, seeing the board, and going, "Wow, that is so beautiful." Or when they get under their feet, it, it, they get the board under their feet, and they go, "Oh my gosh, this is the best board I've ever surfed." And it, it's just the stoke. It becomes infectious and it spreads. And that's to me where I see our business going. Interesting. And if I can give anything to my my peers out there the other you know surfboard makers is that you know you guys need to we need to make the best boards possible we need to do the r&d we got to make sure they work and uh, i really feel that that is the way to grow and kind of sort of sidestep this uh impersonal sort of big box mentality of you know just uh marketing and instagram is going to sell everything and it's like it, now you look at Instagram and it's it's like so it's just like you get lost. It's just so much information that I just I can't even I can't even, honestly personally I don't even look at it anymore because I just uh, it kind of derails me from like trying to focus on that what I just said trying to make the best board I can okay and make it look as beautiful as I possibly can because I honestly think that's the future hundred percent it isn't. To me, it isn't Instagram. Uh, it isn't definitely not. I mean, team writers are necessary because they they make the board look even better. Um, but ultimately, like if the average surfer gets on the board and they just go, "Oh my gosh!" Like hindsight's twenty twenty. Why didn't I get this board twenty years ago? Uh, that's that's really essence of what's uh, what's what's going to thrive hmm. in the future. Well, that's a good segue to get off the business of the surf business, and I'd be remiss to not actually discuss surfboard design with you. We, You keep talking about quality, and if that board works good, I'd like to understand how a board works good and like how much of surfboard design principle is objective you know, versus subjective, because, I mean, can you say... Putting a double concave on the bottom of a board makes the board do this, given that there's a million variables between the way, the way that the water is interplaying with the board and the way that the surfer is applying pressure to the board. Um, there seems to be a real element of engineering involved, but there's always a real element of creativity involved from the shaper and how they make that shape. So the question is just how much of your job is applying objective principles versus intuition and art yeah that's a that's a really interesting question to because recently i've really had to address that and uh, what makes a board ride good exactly uh, what makes a magic board um and actually i've kind of and this is going to sound pretty uh, ironic, but it's actually simpler than I thought. Really? Uh, yeah, because basically I think most people, I mean, the most of the time we're paddling and we're sitting. And uh, what we want to do is we want to catch a lot of waves. And we want and we want the board to be able to catch the wave easy. So if you can make a board that paddles and catches waves easy, then you've like there's like half the battle right there. Because you're not surfing. You're surfing like a very small percentage of the time when you're in the water. 
Um, the other thing I think, and which goes hand in hand with that, with paddling and catching waves, is the speed of the board. If the board goes fast, it's going to turn, and that's just as simple as that. So if you just like go back to the basics of what makes a board ride good, and just make it make it paddle good and catch waves and go fast, and you know, and obviously it's more complicated than that with all the you know intricacies of the bottom and the outline and all that. But if you just focus on those elements, then it it kind of you know you don't go down these like you start looking at all these literally complex uh, concepts and you know again construction techniques that oh it's going to ride better um, because I make it out of this or that or I put the carbon strip here or there um, and honestly that's not really what what the essence of a good magic board is it's uh I, i'm catching waves um i'm paddling easy uh, this is e- i'm having fun um and that's i mean it's as kind of as simple as that let me play devil's advocate then sure yes and no. i mean you you one detail you said if if the board goes fast it's going to turn I agree with you in theory that like simple is better. And I think in design, in nature, nature is proven like in, from the design standpoint, like simple is better. However, that one sentence, like if it goes fast, it's going to turn. Well, not necessarily. Like if you got a cruise ship goes super fast, but doesn't turn very sharply or in the world of surfboards, a glider with straight lines, straight rails, like flatter rocker goes very fast, but it's very hard to turn. So then, okay, let's add some rocker. So you increase the turning radius when you get the board on rail. Um, that improves turn maneuverability and turning radius, but you're going to sacrifice some bit of speed. I always understand or understood that like you're going to, there's you're gonna for everything you get you're gonna lose something so whatever you get in speed you're gonna lose in turning but then if you want more turning you're gonna lose a little bit of speed so it's all about finding the right blend of ingredients for where you're gonna be surfing and the type of surfing that you do so then when you try to find that middle ground you find yourself adding channels contours you know concaves things like that um what are your thoughts i don't have a question uh, the imperfect makes the perfect. Uh, let's see the like the let's let me like say that better. Uh, the mistakes in a board makes makes the board magic. I mean the it's like you can't make a board per, like just a one curve. It's like just a perfect curve. I mean in nature there isn't any perfect curves. It's just not like. There's no circles like in nature. I mean, there is, but there always there's always an element of imperfection. So, I mean, a, a, a magic board is a combination of um, perfection and flaws. So, at some point, you put like a, a a perfect curve, but then it has to have a flaw in it, a straight spot, and that's what makes the board. That's what gives the board the magic. That's the spot that makes the board paddle or go fast. And then you increase, and then you go back to the curve. So. I mean, it's it's it, it, you're right. There's there's a lot of elements uh, to make a magic board, but it, it's uh, it's like I guess all the years I've been shaping close to thirty, I've kind of found that that you know finding that imperfection is really the key to to the magic board. Hmm. It's almost as simple as that. So if you take a per- like again, if you take a perfect curve and you just like take the middle of the curve and you just flatten it out. 
I mean, that's kind of what I'm saying to do. That's why it is simple. Um, because it's like, it's the mistake that makes it perfect. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Is it, I'm wondering, um, I've heard that discussed in other forms of art, like when you're having a blanket made from, you know, or a rug in Nepal, like they sew in an imperfection into the rug because that's what adds the charm to it or the personal touch, I think, is probably more of what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. This is the human element in this thing. Um, Is it just that there's the human element in it and that there's an art? in it or is it actually like a scientific does that actually make it better from a kind of measurable way you know i mean people want to you know measure perfection uh, it's just like something that they want to grasp so they can yeah. understand it but it's not measurable because the surfboard is an interesting um, piece of equipment you have two mo- moving surfaces uh the board and the wave and you have these angles of attack, you know, the water's going up the face and you're going and you're constantly changing the directions based on the water flow. So it's almost impossible yeah. to, to isolate that, that perfect element. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's an abstract and actually to get back to what you said earlier, it's, it is, it's almost that perfection that you find is, is it comes from pure intuition. Okay. Because there's no way you can, put it in a flow tank um like a like a like a keel on a, on a boat and and watch the flow at different rates of uh you know knots of speed of the water moving across it it's just impossible hmm. so we have to we have to sort of um use our logic and uh the logical part of a surfboard is the volume uh so the board needs to paddle you know float the person so there's a, like there is some concrete uh elements to a surfboard that make it um real like it has to has to float the person and i mean those that's just um that's just you know proper engineering but the the it's like you have the more you trust your intuition in shaping um the better boards the better boards i make and i've really realized that recently and um i've made some i've made some really big big breakthroughs by like just kind of throwing up my hands in a sense and just going you know what uh I'm just going to go with my gut on this and then doing it and then writing it and going, I think, I think, I think that was it, Hmm. you know, because I can't logically isolate it. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that, or I accept that answer of intuition. It makes a lot more sense to me because I do feel like there's way too many variables to actually isolate for any shaper to be able to say definitively, this is how this element of the design works period there things are always in flux and there's just too many variables to account for yet i do know that certain things do work better than others so the intuition is the answer you know and it's probably impossible to articulate but i suppose if you've been doing anything for 30 years that a lot you know a lot of it is hard to articulate and it is intuition. Yeah, well, once you've done it for 30 years and you've really tried to do it logically and you and you fail and you fail and you fail, you realize in the times when you do do it with your intuition and you trust it because um, you've tried everything and it didn't quite come out the way you wanted it, then the more you can trust your intuition because yeah. you've, you've, you've just given up on your own logic, I guess, or your own 
Um, and then it, because it just can get really complicated and, yeah. and, uh, you can go down into the weeds and not get out of it. And, but, uh, it's amazing, uh, when you do come to the realization, uh, I mean, it's definitely a process, you know, it's not something you come to overnight, but, um, uh, any new shapers out there, it's like, yeah, if you can just shape, um, you know, kind of, I mean, it sounds strange just from your heart, you know? Well, what you, you know, I don't know uh, how else to explain it. It's a, it's an abstract concept, but it uh, it really works. Well, so. the more we talk about it in these terms, the more I realize that it is an art form. There's elements, of course, of engineering, but it is an art form in this aspect. Like, and you could ask Bob Dylan to explain what he meant when he wrote the lyrics to whatever. But every single person who listens to the song interprets it differently, and his intention was probably irrelevant anyway. It's just now it exists as an art form, and it is what it is, you know, and there's no explaining it. And almost explaining it or trying to come up with some sort of logical explanation of it kind of undermines it a little bit, you know. It is just 30 years of experience. That's what it is, and intuition. Mm. Um I'm curious, do you ride other shapers' surfboards? You know, that's a good question. I um, I don't that often, but I when I do, I uh, I really learn a lot because I get into their sort of their heads a bit and find out where they're at. You know, like as far as what their priorities are. When I get, I, you know, I, re- I wrote a board about six months ago and the minute I started paddling and I go, Oh man, this thing paddles amazing and catches waves amazing and actually set me on this kind of road to like focusing on the elements that do make a board fun. Um, so yes, in, in, in the few that I have ridden, um, I've been, you know, I, I learned a lot. And so I can apply those ideas to my own shaping. Um, obviously it's like anything if you do too much of riding all these other boards then you 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 know you get overwhelmed and you're like wow there's so many things you can do in so many ways like strength that board you know boards have like oh this board just like doesn't catch waves at all but it when i get in a wave man it turns insane so you know i don't really want to make my boards not catch waves i want them to you know catch waves so you know that's not my priority but when i I guess I weed out like the boards that don't work by saying, well, am I getting into ways? Am I going fast? And then, uh, and then the third thing would be like, okay, it's turning. So I, I, I've kind of reached my goal. And then there's like, that's there's actually the fourth thing, that magic element, which is kind of, uh, it, it, that's something that, you know, it's trial and error and that's where the intuition comes in. Can you, Tell me some names. Whose boards are you interested in riding or whose designs are most intriguing to you right now? Um, I think uh, uh, Mandela, um, Manny Caro. Uh, I think I said his last name correct. I think so. Um, I think he's got a very uh, unique approach to making surfboards. And um, I think his priority is catching waves and, and paddling in that sense. And... Uh, he does have um he makes magic boards and um he's you know very a small manufacturer uh and i think he does a great job um obviously it's not for everybody um and he definitely goes down very highly experimental roads even with materials um 
but I, I, I mean, he's a very thoughtful shaper. He, he puts a lot of, um, I think he puts a lot of time into thinking and he definitely comes from a, a kind of the rich Pavel background, which is like, um, you know, he'll spend two days on one board, um, and he just puts everything of himself into that board. And, um, he, you know, most every board that Rich Bavel makes, it's like, it's pretty, pretty darn gone good. I mean, it's going to work. I mean, I don't know how I've ridden his boards and, um, he definitely has a well balanced package. And I think the shapers that learn from him, which he prides himself on, you know, um, having a lot of people that learned under him. And I think those people, pick up on that sort of mentality like Ryan Birch and have really done a really good job of making pretty magic boards that are well balanced that are uh, you know that the not only that they can rip on like Ryan Birch is an amazing surfer but the average person can surf well so I've been looking to those guys um, I've never ridden a Ryan Birch um, board but I mean I, I see him riding them and uh, you know, they got volume. They look like they catch waves really easy. And uh, it's just, um, it's amazing what he's done. And that's where that youthfulness, um, he's, you know, he's young, so he gets it. He, you know, and he's got fresh eyes um, to look at uh, surfboard design. Interesting. If you could order any surfboard from any shaper, what would you order? Honestly, like I think you go back to going back to Ryan Birch at this point because I think he's he's right now probably as far as like in thirty years of shaping, um, I don't, I've never seen somebody pick up shaping so quickly. Um, and then and then again, and his surfing is so uh, amazing. So I mean, I have such respect for for him. I would say that his boards his like one of his fishes say i would i would order above everybody else's at this point awesome what surf media do you consume right now in your life are you you said you're not really paying attention to instagram do you subscribe to any magazines no do you watch any surf films no i mean right now i'm just kind of in a in a kind of a place in my sort of the industry like being in it for 30 years and um it's just static to me a lot of it and i i'm I, I don't know i don't know if it's instinctually i'm staying away from it like i uh i don't have a uh I, I don't like hate it or anything or i don't like disdain it i just have a just at this point in my career you know i just i want to just sort of keep the static away at what everybody else is doing um so i can focus sort of on what's working and I'm getting good results from that, so I'm just kind of I'm going with it. And I think it's definitely um, that's also intuition. Yeah, it's funny. Of all the people I've interviewed on this show, I've asked a lot of them, you know, that same question. I don't know anybody that actually subscribes to the magazines anymore. And I hate to say that, you know, because the magazines have been such a big part of my life and they've informed my surf experience, but. I don't know if it's just that I'm getting all the information I need out of other outlets or if they're just actually doing a worse job than they were when I was young, you know, like maybe they're just not as interesting anymore. Um, I haven't quite figured it out yet. I think they're in major defense mode. They're they're They don't know what to do. Uh, internet content is so accessible that they're just, 
I think they're putting content out there out of kind of in a sense out of fear. Yeah. They're just trying to like just I don't know what they're doing, but it doesn't seem to be um the way it was like free flowing back in the day, you know, when it was just print. Um but now they're 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 like they've got their guard up and they've got their swords out and they're just they don't you know they're just like stand back we're not we're not we're not going down without a fight and and that's re- being reflected in the content yeah i think so too yeah i think that if they try to compete in terms of beautiful imagery and like getting news out there quick obviously they can't compete with uh immediacy of instagram and digital but i think they need to double down on their effort to produce interesting story and compelling characters and invest in really good writers you know and i think you know the surfer's journal has done that successfully um where it's like you can you five thousand word pieces that they put in there you can't get anywhere else and so that's their selling point but i think that's where they need to double down on um what surfers are you most excited to watch? Not that you watch much anymore, but who who do you kind of stop Dave everything? Rostovich. Oh. And the reason being is like, I mean, he's one of the most dynamic surfers that ever lived. Um, the unique thing that Dave has done is he's kept himself extremely elusive. Uh, you know, you really can't even find anything on him. And, uh, and that's sort of like part of the... Uh, the appeal is that it's he's not like so accessible as all these other um surfers so you know you just like you want when you get a little bit of it you just like wow it's so he's so good and and i want more but then you can't find it so it's like it's like just the opposite of social media it's like starving you um a bit for him so you want it more it's just like waiting for the a movie to come out and uh and you know you want to see it so bad and you're waiting and you're waiting um it's not this instant gratification thing like and then it comes out and you're like you're so excited and when you see it it it's just like it's amazing and you're like wow that was the best movie ever um because everything is so instant these days um dave has kept himself uh he's worked that angle i don't doubt it's conscious um i just think he doesn't really like to be in the limelight and the other thing about him is like um, I mean, the fact that, you know, I've made some boards for him and stuff and he's been currently riding him and, uh, he's just this huge, gigantic person that I, when I first met him, I made him a speed square, just a real quick story, uh, which is this real obscure board, um, that Chris Del Moro and I made, which is based off a boogie board, a Mach 7.7. And we he goes, I want to make a boogie board that I can stand up on. Like I was, like I did when I was a kid. So we made this thing, this this thing. It's a, it's just like a, I don't even know what it is. It's a surfboard, but it it works. And uh, and Chris rides it amazing. And then Dave, just like being the way he is, he just wants to ride something really weird, and that's his whole thing. Um, so he got on one and just fell in love with it, and it's gotten two others since then. And then watching him surf that and just with style and control and uh, finesse is just amazing. But so the, my point was he came in and uh, I made him like a four, a four O oh. and, uh, and Chris goes, that's not big enough. And I go, what do you mean? Dave seems like he's not a very big guy. He comes walking into my factory and he's gigantic. Really? Oh, he's got shoulders on him. They're just out to barely fit through the doorway. Not literally, but I mean, he's just proportionally 
he's just he's just giant and all over you know he's just but so when you watch him surf i've never seen anybody um that's that big have a just such a you know you look at him and you look oh he's just normal um but he's just he's it, that's how good he is um, how tall is he do you think i think he's like six three that's crazy but he's got a chest and shoulders on him that are, are, i mean he they call him the yeti Right, because he's so big, and I w- you would never have guessed. I've never seen anything like it. You've never seen. He has so much grace. Well, that's my point. Is that how can you be that big? Because you watch big surf, like big large, Jordy, surf and Owen Wright. Right, and they, they look, and they they look they look big yeah, on the wave, yeah. and Dave doesn't. He looks perfectly proportioned, and I don't know. It's a gift that, that um he has, and I don't I don't can't I don't know. But it's like he's the most beautiful surfer to watch in my mind. I couldn't agree with you more. I love him. Yeah, and um, I forgot actually that you were making some boards for him. How did you guys meet? Was it through Chris? Yeah, their buddies. Yeah, I mean. Uh, it's, it's kind of, Dave is, you know, lives on a farm sort of thing in Australia, a big, uh, huge parcel of land. And, uh, he kind of doesn't, he doesn't like to leave. And uh, so when he does leave, it's for a special reason, like usually for some sort of, um, um, you know, charity, charity event or something, or, uh, you know, his, his, all his, um, things he's into with like help you know saving the whales and things like that he did a couple years ago so he, he kind of doesn't leave unless there's a real reason he's not going and leaving and going on surf trips to go on surf trips to you know kind of um sell himself yeah i mean he just kind of um does what he wants and uh he doesn't own a cell phone does he no he doesn't and um he had this uh i was trying to email him uh, a couple years ago um and he he just wouldn't return my email and uh I, chris told me don't take it personal it's it, davis um davis that's just how he is and uh he even had some obscure email that said uh oh gosh it said something like uh, i'm not going to the name of his email was like i'm not going to return your email <laughs> <laughs> at gmail.com yeah or something and he just basically was straight up about it and that's the thing about dave he doesn't pull any punches and he's very honest about um, who he is and stuff. So, all of that stuff does add to the allure of his mystique. But the surfing speaks for itself. Uh, absolutely, it's the guy's unbelievable. Yeah, he's every, like the whole package. Every single, and it is. I think what you said too is I don't get to see enough of him. But he was in Keith Malloy's recent film Fish People. He was in Taylor Steele's most recent film Proximity, and even in Fish People, he's like body surfing a lot of the time, and it's just awesome. Like that, I'll watch that too. It's really, really uh, aspirational. Actually, it's like that's how I want to surf. Yeah. Um, what's your current relationship like with surfing? I would think it factors prominently into your work life. You need to be able to know how boards are responding and performing. But you also have a wife and kid, and kid on the way, like business obligations, all sorts of stuff that can keep you out of the water. So, what does that look like now? Well, I've just come out of like a kind of a very, you know, um, how would I say this? It, it was a trying time in my life. Um, I, you know, my mother had uh, stage four cancer and passed on uh, July, or I'm sorry, April 25th. Um, I'm sorry, 27th. <laughs> 
it's been a blur, you know, so it's like, that was really tough. She lived with us and I was her, like, I guess you could say her advocate, um, through her, um, through the cancer. So, um, that pretty much just changed my whole focus on life and, you know, kind of going back to, you know, what's important, you know, with my family and, uh, spending time with my son and, um, I have a daughter on the way in the middle of October. So, uh, to be honestly, I'm still trying to find that new normal. So to get back to the surfing, to answer your question, it's, uh, it's right now, it's just not a priority. And, um, I guess I want to, you know, thank God that he's kind of given me some insight on in, in my business part of my life and, you know, said like, go with your intuition with the board design thing for now. And it's working because you're not surfing mm-hmm. so it's like uh you know somebody upstairs is uh watching out for me i guess yeah. you could say and, yeah. it's interesting everybody goes through seasons of their life you know and um i certainly have nothing that serious but like i always identify as a surfer and i always kind of feel like i'm surfing even though i'll check my watch and be like oh no i actually haven't surfed in three weeks you know but in my head i'm still a surfer and um i was talking to dave parman around this show and he was like tom maury has a quote that like everything is surfing you get to a point in your life where your body doesn't work the way that it once did so you're not but everything is surfing the way that i all the things that i've learned in the ocean about rhythm and like it applies to human relationships and it applies to business you know and everything is surfing so yeah that's that's an interesting quote um I guess how I I do identify myself as a surfer, um, absolutely. Uh, I don't feel like I'm um, like less of a surfer because I'm not surfing at yeah, this time. Yeah, exactly. Um, I do live more vicariously through others, you know, which is actually kind of fun because just you know, kind of tap, tapping into their stoke, yeah, um, their happiness with surfing and sort of uh, seeing it from their perspective. So. Um, yeah, I'm. I can't wait to start surfing again. I just, you know, things need to level out for me, and then once it does, I, I feel like you know it's going to be more fun than ever. Totally, I find some of my actually best performances have been after I take a month or two off. You know. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think uh, when I was surfing, I, when I surf every day, I my expectations for myself get too high, mm-hmm. and I start thinking about what I'm doing too much when I'm on a wave and obviously thinking when you're surfing isn't a good idea you just kind of want to let it flow and that's when things uh again going back to intuition it's like uh surfing is intuition purely um so you know there you go do you remember what the last surfboard you rode was yeah we've been working on this uh this fish i call it the concave keel it's it sort of names itself it's just got a really deep concave on the bottom and it's pretty unique and it's amazing uh it's one of these boards i just designed you know just sort of out of a gut feeling again intuition and uh and it was like one of those experiences that when i the little i have surfed when i've surfed it it's just been such a joy and it just like completely changed my 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 outlook on on fishes for sure and and again and that was uh in my description on my website of the board i do i just i you know it's it's rich pavel and ryan birch again the the two inspirations that got me to you know um to kind of think outside the box on that i wasn't at all willing to do it um yeah and i you know and and the funny story is is like uh rich pavel worked in this factory when i first took over um 
this building and he was in here for you know a year or so and i learned so much Hmm. just watching him just kind of going back to the roots of why i do it and like where he was so methodical um and took so much time it wasn't about you know like i need to I need to crank out 10 boards today or five boards, whatever. It was just like, I I just, right now I'm in this moment and I'm focusing on this one board and I'm going to make it the best I can. And uh, I I thought that was really cool because it was fresh. Because in LA, everybody was just cranking, trying to survive because the, you know, it's just such a fast paced uh, life there. And you just, and you're trying to pay these bills that are ever, you know, increasing. Right. Uh, in closing, I've always appreciated your humility with what you do. Um, I've had a lot of listeners tell me that I should interview you. And, like, you and I have crossed paths. Um, and so, like, I've interacted with you and stuff. And um, listeners have always, t- again, mentioned, like, hey, you should interview Calvani at some point. So I've been meaning to for a while. But I, one thing that I do like about you is your humility because – so much we talked about this off air a little bit but like there's a lot of arrogant surfboard shapers you know and every one of them that you talk to like i was saying explains how their way is the only way their way is the best way anybody who does it any other way doesn't know what they're doing and then i go to the beach and i see 20 different brands of surfboards that are all working amazingly so it's like well these other people have relevance too you know and this is kind of tangential but um I'm really into wine and in California you have these winemakers that have become celebrities and then they'll go work for a bunch of different wineries and that winery will pay them a consulting fee and really just use their name. Just like this is made by Thomas Rivers Brown and like the, the winemaker is more important than the brand. Mm. But what you, what has always been traditional and what will ultimately outlast is like in Bordeaux and in France and these places that have actually been making wine for 500 years Mm -hmm. you can't name one winemaker's name you just know that there's mouton rothschild and chateau margot and they've had 30 different winemakers none of whom you could name because the legacy is what's important Mm. you know and the land is what's important and like and so i feel like you've kind of adopted that model where it's like look whether it was a go shaper back in the day or whatever it's like look the legacy is important and what i've learned i'm just passing through my hands really and you've kind of shied away from the spotlight a little bit um and never put calvani in front of bing or whatever the brand is that you're working for Mm. and so i've always really admired that so bravo thank you i think uh you know uh i want to express sort of what that i think where it comes from and it's like uh it's you know my faith uh honestly like i don't i know that my gifts my abilities my humility everything comes from from god i mean uh so i don't take credit for it yeah in, in my mind and that's why i i stay humble because i don't want to be humble and you know my nature isn't humble it wants to be uh self-grandizing you know and i want to be you know out there but I, I, at the same time i realize like it's not it's really not me and again, that's where in that in the essence of like the last part of this conversation is intuition. Um, honestly, intuition comes from from God, and uh, that's why it's like I'm, I I can't take ownership of it, and uh, that's what keeps me humble. Yeah, awesome. 
Well, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time, man. Thank you, Matt Calvani. Bingsurf.com is where you can see all of Matt's work. We have a link to it on surfsplendorpodcast.com. We also have a comment section if you'd like to leave feedback about today's show. We also have about 190 past episodes of various podcasts, Shaping Surfing, which are interviews with surfboard shapers like this one. Other guests include Eric Arakawa, John Pizel, Mickey Munoz, Tom Mori, Mark Andrini, and many, many more. We also have a show called Wax On, which is long-form interviews with surf luminaries like photographers Todd Glazer and Morgan Mawson, publisher Steve Pesman, filmmaker Andrew Kidman, and then, of course, I also have a show called The Grit, which is a bi-weekly surf culture gossip roundup with Chas Smith of from Beach Grit. All of that, the entire archive of podcasts are available for free at surfsplendorpodcast.com. I'll also encourage you to support the show. You can make a financial contribution through a PayPal button on the website, or you can simply share the show with friends. Organic and authentic growth is ideal. So think of someone who would appreciate this type of content and then just share it with them. We'd all benefit. The more listeners and downloads that this show receives, the more likely we'll be able to get Kelly Slater to announce his retirement here rather than in a magazine or an interview with a website. Kelly, we're waiting for your call. And uh, lastly, as a listener, you can rate and review this show in your podcast app. One recent review in Apple Podcasts says, quote, My wife doesn't surf, and she knows very little about the sport, but is still able to follow along and enjoy the listen. This is a great podcast for all. Keep them coming, and we'll keep listening. End quote. While I certainly appreciate that sentiment, you certainly don't have to torture your wife by listening to this. Um, so, But as a listener, if you review this show, obviously that just helps other people to find it. So please ensure to do that. You can also follow us on social media at Surf Splendor. I try to stir the pot over there whenever time permits. And anyway, in honor of Matt Calvani, here's to hard work ethic humility and being kind thank you for joining us in this conversation matt until next week this is david scales for the surf splendor network reminding you to get back into the ocean or your local wave pool share a couple of waves and shred on